people in this period were very interested in the transition from the live performance to the film performance. And they had a little thing with a clown doing a pantomime of catching a light on the stage. And, you know, the light is moving all over the stage. And he finally catches it and throws it at the back of the set. And then the movie image appears there. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. The theatrical experience has been essential to our idea of movie going for 120 years. But how have theaters themselves shaped how we look at the art of moving pictures? I'll talk to William Paul, author of When Movies Were Theater. And speaking of how theaters provide context, I'll check in with a silent film festival that takes place in a concert hall. Be sure you're always in context. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. For fans of silent film, certain place names instantly mean festivals. Pordenone, Bologna, Topeka. Okay, I'm from Kansas so I can joke about that. But the Kansas Silent Film Festival is no joke. It's in its 22nd year of putting on quality presentations with live accompaniment in a concert hall at Washburn University. This year's will be February 23rd and 24th with a special theme devoted to women in front of and behind the camera. The performers playing for the films will include Nitrateville members Jeff Rapsis and Rodney Sauer with the Mont Alto Motion Picture Orchestra. I spoke with film historian Denise Morrison of the Kansas City Museum, who's one of the festival's organizers. Yeah, we've been around for a while. Um, started by the uh, public library there in Topeka who wanted, you know, to do an evening of silent film and it's turned into a day and a half of, <laughs> of silent film events. We've kind of I've grown beyond the public library. So uh, we're, we're in our 22nd year, always been at Washburn University in their big white concert hall. So we can hold a lot of people and uh, we've always been free. The only other thing I would say, particularly for those who are interested in film, it is a film festival. We do 16 millimeter film, but there are some times when we do DVD. So it's a kind of a combination of 16 millimeter and DVD. But we try to we try to keep film part of the film festival. <laughs> and you do uh, live accompaniment for all shows. Um, 99% of the shows, there are a couple of unique instances where we used 
the sound, particularly something like City Lights, where we wanted to use Chaplin's original score. Um, but for the most part, yes. And we tried to do a variety of live accompaniment to show the audience the various types. So we have organ, we have piano, and uh, we have orchestra, small orchestra. We try to provide our audience with a variety of musical accompaniment uh, because in during that time, it would have been different based on the theater they went to. So we have organ, we have piano, uh, we have a small orchestra this year, Montalto, from Colorado will be joining us. Uh, so we, we like to give them a variety of musical accompaniment. And you have a theme this year I saw about women in silent film. Tell me about that. Yeah, we, uh, not every year, but uh, there are some years where we do a particular theme either uh, in the afternoon or in the evening. But this year, our whole festival revolves around women in silent film both in front of and behind the scenes. And we've been kicking this around the scene for a while, but the opportunity to bring Carrie Beecham in as our featured speaker um, uh, gave us the, the excuse to, to do that this year where we could just give over the whole uh, day and a half to women in film. Um, and having read recently Steve Mass's Slapstick Divas gave uh, us inspiration to do an evening of, of uh, funny ladies. And uh, so it just, it kind of grew from, from that and from being able to bring Carrie in. Yeah. So tell me, what are some of the programs that you have planned? Well, Friday night, we're uh, doing this uh, kind of homage to Steve's book. And we'll be bringing in shorts from that feature Louise Fazenda and Alice Howell, Gail Henry. Um, and then we'll be doing our feature will be the Colleen Moore, Why Be Good, uh, with Montalto accompanying. Um, we'll be showing uh, a film uh, by Alice Guy Blash and um, another uh by Lois Weber. We've got a great little film that doesn't get shown very often, Back to God's Country, with Nell Shipman, who was one of those unique women who kind of did it all, um, produced, directed, starred, wrote, edited, um, and kind of stayed off of Hollywood's radar, but was still uh, popular uh, throughout mainly the teens. And I don't think very many people know much about her. So we're excited to bring in a film uh, with her. We have an interesting film from Italy, Syllabus, that Montalto recommended that they'll be accompanying with uh, the main villain as a woman. And uh, we've got something from Mabel Normand. We've got something from uh, Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drew, which... They were a unique couple. He directed, she wrote most of their uh, little domestic comedy shorts. Uh, and then in the, eve, the uh, final evening, Saturday night, we'll be featuring uh, Amarillo Clothesline Alley, the Mary Pickford feature with screenplay by Frances Marion and uh, giving Carrie an opportunity to, to speak to that since she wrote the book on Frances. 
Um, and we also do on Saturday a, a cinema dinner for those who sign up, and Carrie will be the after dinner speaker uh, for that. So she'll get plenty of chances to preach <laughs> the word uh, on women in film, silent film for us. Now, I used to program films not too far away from there at the University of Kansas. Uh, and I was I was there during the time that home video and cable and all those things took off. So I had the pleasure of watching my audience dwindle year by year. Uh, so I'm impressed <laughs> with anyone uh, who is, has gone in the opposite direction with a film program in Kansas. Why did this take off so well? And, and how do you feel about the audience reaction to it? Well, I, I think having it free <laughs> helps. That helps. Because... They can come and go, and if they are new to uh, silent films and are just have always heard about a title and never seen it or want to see it on the big screen with live accompaniment, uh, get the quote-unquote real deal, they can come, and if they don't like it, they're not obligated financially <laughs> or, or feel cheated. Um, mostly what I like about it is that we get uh, just every generation. We've get, we've got kids, we've got seniors, we've got families that uh, just come. They're they're specifically interested Friday evening because it's comedy, or they really wanted to see Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Drew, so they come in the afternoon. They've just got those opportunities to come and go, and I think that has helped. I don't know. Topeka's been a good uh, venue. People have been really supportive. And excited to see our program every year. And we draw, we're now drawing from more than just the Midwest. We've got people that come down from the frigid tundra of Minnesota and uh, come up from the Southwest. So our biggest problem has been having it at the end of February when you never know year to year whether the weather's going <laughs> to be scary or fine. So what was the thinking on showing off Kansas in February anyway? <laughs> well, originally, that was one of the only times where the music department, which is in charge of White Concert Hall, was away for that weekend. And we could have free run of that concert hall without having to worry about uh, classes or the music department taking over the stage at any at any time. They always went away on some kind of music slash band uh, conference. And it was always that weekend, last weekend in February. They don't do that anymore. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so now it's a bit of on Fridays, when we're there to set up, we begin our festival on Friday evenings. So we spend the whole day setting up on Friday. And it we have had some years recently where there have been classes on stage or someone's uh, working on this or that, and we can't enter the auditorium. And uh, that just makes it a little harder to... <laughs> to not a stress-free weekend when that happens. All right. Anything else that you want to say about it? Just that, you know, uh, welcome to all. And if uh, they want to brave the 
the end of February in Kansas, which <laughs> hopefully will be we good. Uh, it'll be, I think it'll be a really great program. And we're really looking forward to having Carrie with us. And uh, you won't be disappointed. I think we, I think we put on a good show. The Kansas Silent Film Festival will be February 23rd and 24th in Topeka, Kansas. The link to the festival's website will be at nitrateville.com. Speaking of Lois Weber, by the way, two of her films, Shoes and The Dumb Girl of Portici, have just been released by Milestone Films. Last year, in Episode 3, I spoke with Dennis Doros of Milestone about those films and Weber's career. So if you're new to Nitrateville Radio, check that one out, and all the past episodes. There's a lot of good stuff back there. Think about the places you've had film experiences. For me, it's Art Deco movie palaces like the Music Box in Chicago, seeing everything from silence with organ accompaniment to Dunkirk in 2001 in 70mm. Or the Capitol in Rome, New York, home of Capitol Fest. It's bland shoebox theaters and multiplexes, where sold-out crowds were thrilled and terrified by the opening weekends of Jaws and Star Wars. It's Wells Chimes at Midnight at a little repertory theater in Paris. And a tiny university media room, where I was the only attendee for Nosferatu with German titles and a bebop score. You can say that a movie never changes, and that's technically true of the film, but the architecture around that movie always affects how we experience it, and how movies are shown has had more influence than we know on how they're made, too. That's the subject of When Movies Were Theater, Architecture, Exhibition, and the Evolution of American Film by William Paul, Professor of Film and Media Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, published by Columbia University Press in 2016, and last fall, winner of the 2017 Richard Wall Memorial Prize from the Theater Library Association for Exceptional Scholarship on the Performing Arts. I spoke with Professor Paul recently. There's a quote early on where you're talking about store theaters, which I think are sort of similar to Nickelodeon theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Although you say not quite the same. Well, let, let's put it this way. It's Nickelodeon theaters could be anything that charged only a nickel. And some of those could be a couple of thousand seats. In fact, the former opera house we used is one. So when the, if you read the trade press in this period, when they say store theater... What they mean is what we tend to think of nowadays when we say Nickelodeons, which are you know these little theaters of 100, maybe 200 seats um, in, a, in a city block nestled in among stores, okay. and they charge to nickel. 
All right. Well, the quote is, the advent of the store theater was a response to the kinds of movies being made. But once established, the store theaters made demands on the kinds of films being produced. And that seems like it's really kind of the thesis of the entire book, not just in relation to store theaters, but the other half of the feedback loop. Obviously, movies affect theaters because you can't show sound movies without sound equipment and you can't show widescreen mm-hmm. movies without a screen big enough for them but you're saying that just as as much the demands of exhibition the architecture of exhibition the the social meaning of exhibition all fed back into how movies were produced yeah that's a really good insight i think you you've summed up quite quite nicely okay well it's then that... then we're done <laughs> well, I hope we can say more. All right, we'll say um, more. You know, I think it's the way of understanding it with store theaters is that store theaters arose in demand to, uh, the, you know, to the uh, ex- to the kinds of movies that were being made, which is short films. That would maybe give you an hour, possibly even two, of entertainment, you know, one right after the other. But since these theaters were very small, they demanded a very high turnover. And uh, it's the only way they could make money is, you know, constantly having people coming in, going out, coming in, going out. So that, in fact, it's a kind of loop, as you said. It, 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 it reinforces the need for these short films instead of moving to the feature film, which is why the feature film really begins in France and Italy rather than in the U.S. Because the basically the, you know, the theatrical plant that we had established for uh, commercial film ex- was geared towards the short film. Okay, and you talk about early on um, kind of two models for theaters that were that were prevalent, or that were at least one of them was common. One was just coming into its own uh, around the time the movie started. Um, and I thought this is really interesting because it, it kind of raises in the architecture what is, who is the movie who's the theater for. One of them is mm-hmm. is what you call the horseshoe theater. Uh, which is what we think of from, you know, opera houses and things like that. And it's really a theater that that whose architecture reinforces the social structure. There's, you know, mm-hmm. you've got the ordinary people on the floor and various levels of aristocracy on the, uh, you know, on the sides and boxes and things like that. Uh, I, yeah, just, yeah. I, ju- I just saw Hamilton at the Schubert in Chicago, and it's very much that kind of theater. still has the boxes. Oh, really? Oh, God. Well, that's good to hear because um, my wife actually saw it at the Public Theater in New York before it went to Broadway. Uh, but we were planning to maybe go up to Chicago because I want to see it in a smaller theater. You know, the touring theaters are way too large for it. Right. So it's good. That, that would be great for me. I'd love to see, a, <laughs> you know, some old-fashioned theater architecture there. That's great. Yeah. All the more reason for me to go. Yeah, and it and you know it it definitely has that advantage, which is that you're up fairly close, just because everything it's very vertical and you know the mm-hmm. seats are are stacked up. And the alternative to that, which is probably more common in movie theaters now, uh, you talk about began with the theaters for putting on Wagner's operas in yeah. Bayreuth. Yeah. Uh, the Auditorium Theater here in Chicago is another example of that. And it's much more of a sloping design. Um, mm-hmm. You can end up very much further away from the stage than you would have in the other kind of theater. But there's a kind of democracy in the fact that they 
reduce although don't entirely get rid of the boxes and all of that so those two models of the theater were sort of out there as the movies are getting started and yeah how, how did that feed into what people well, well, one thing just as you mentioned the auditorium is, is people it's it's hard to understand it now but that was really a radical design when it came out because the um and in a way the theater the movie theater especially the store theater plays a a role in this transition is I think, you know, nowadays we tend to, as you mentioned, we tend to associate the Horseshoe Theater with Opera House. But in point of fact, that was the dominant theatrical form. That was the dominant form for all theaters in the 19th century, uh, both here and in Europe. And in fact, it's a form that's maybe about 300 years old. And it was still the dominant form at the turn of the century. Now, you know, if that's what most theaters look like one of the really radical things about the store theater was just you know they were small but everybody was on the same level uh, so it's the store theater really challenged that and then starting in the late teens and going into the 20s the theaters that are built for live theater start to have more frontal arrangements they move away from that horseshoe shape and that, of course, is you know absolutely necessary for movies. The horseshoe shape does not work for movies because you're looking at a flat image. And that means that a lot of people are placed at bad angles to the screen. Right. You can only so get so far to the side before you're really mm -hmm. not seeing the image at all, which wasn't yeah. the case if someone, you know, an actress is at the front of the stage performing to the whole house. Because with the, the kind of horseshoe theater, it pushed the action towards the front of the stage. Because action in the back of the stage would not necessarily be visible to everybody in the audience. So you could accommodate that shape by staging. But you couldn't change the image. The image is what it is. And it's not going to work in a horseshoe theater. Although that's the, you know, the, the first showings in theaters in the 90s. Those were all shown in horseshoe-shaped theaters. So it's it's the, you know, it's the movies demanded a change. They demanded an architectural change. So that would be the movies expecting the theaters to change. But talking about how the theaters force things on the movies, you talk about mm -hmm. how, you know, the idea that the action needs to be central in the frame you know, mm -hmm. the pe people assume that's an aesthetic choice, but in fact, it has a lot to do with what would be visibility from those less than ideal seats off to the, you know, absolutely. Off the well, um, th this comes about with the building of the big palaces, uh, which uh, maybe one of the more controversial things I say in the in the book is in the uh, introduction, where I said, you know, truth to tell, these the palaces weren't really very good places in which to see movies, and partly because they were built too wide. Um, now there was in the in the exhibition throughout the 20s, as you know, the the screen was actually placed towards the back of the stage, so that minimized the angle somewhat. But the width of the auditorium had a couple of consequences. You're right; it, you know, there's a tendency to move towards the center because you're going to, especially if you have softer backgrounds, because you're going to perceive distortion less uh, less noticeably if everything is kind of centered with a soft background. The other thing that leads to that was the illumination was not what it would eventually become. And so the center was also the brightest part of the image, plain and simple. 
you know, that there'd be a kind of light fall off as you moved from the center. So that's another reason for that. That's another a really interesting point that I, I had never really thought about. You know, we're so used to, to screens being up front and center. Uh, even in older theaters, probably because they're not really shaped for widescreen, so the screen tends to get built out at the front. But back in the day, the screen was at the back of the stage. It was, it was as if it was the backdrop for the scene. And that has a lot of aesthetic effects. Absolutely. Um, as I said, partly, you know, it was to minimize the angles in the, these very wide auditoriums. But then the other thing that they did, and I think you, you've probably read extensively on this now, is that they would place the screen in a stage setting to kind of fill out the visual field in front of the, in the auditorium and kind of enhance the image, make it not seem so, you know, this sort of isolated spot on a huge dark stage. And that also made it possible to put the screen at the back because there was sort of visual interest extending to the front of the stage from the stage setting that surrounded the, uh, the, the image. Right, so you show pictures in the book of a garden scene and the screen is just kind of the back of this garden with all these actual props mm -hmm. extending out yeah. of it. You know, basically as if it were the play happening right in front of them, you know, as if the, the actors were there. Um, Absolutely, yeah. Which seems very distracting to us. We're used to very plain rectangles in darkness. Yeah, it does. You know, actually, what, um, back when in the early stages of research for the book, when I discovered this kind of odd practice, um, I was uh, teaching at the University of Michigan at the time uh, in Ann Arbor. We had a local movie palace. It was an 1800-seat theater with Moorish architecture. It was built in the 20s. And... Uh, we put on a performance with, with live orchestra of Chaplin's The Circus. And um, I had talked to the guy who ran the theater, and we, they, they came up with a kind of introductory show to lead, into the, um, to lead into the movie. And they had this whole circus set that was built on the stage. And the screen was put upstage, in a way, at the back of the stage, in the circus set. And they did this really nice thing, because I was talking to, to the, uh, the head of the theater, uh, Russ, about how the people in this period were very interested in the transition from the live performance to the film performance. And they had a little thing with a clown doing a pantomime of catching a light on the stage. And, you know, the light is moving all over the stage, and he finally catches it and throws it at the back of the set. And then the movie image appears there. And and it's you know the movie and the chaplain it says Chap Charles Charles Charlie Chaplin the circus, and uh, and the film starts, um, and initially you know now the the stage was not illuminated because you don't want to interfere with the quality of the image, but the screen sheds off enough light that the you serve in a kind of shadowy light you continue to perceive the set throughout the movie. And, you know, you think it would be distracting, but it wasn't. It was actually kind of cool. Um, and as I said, it really did enhance the image in ways I hadn't expected. So I'm, I'm always, I give them a thank you and the acknowledgement because I was always grateful to, for staging that because it was the one chance I got to see what this might have looked like in the period. And it was surprising to say that, you know, it wasn't distracting. Huh. 
Well, what's interesting about doing it that way is, you know, with the theater obviously such an influence on film exhibition, they're looking at it as, as having continuity with theater, and so the image is kept sort of within some level of similarity to it as if live actors were there. And the particular mm-hmm. effect of that is discouraging close-ups. You know, the 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 actors on the screen, they generally want them to be what passes for looking like real actors there. Now, they may actually be 10 feet tall at times, mm-hmm. but you sort of have, you know, medium shot, whole person more or less there, and it, it kind of keeps that illusion where the giant close-up, which we think of as such a central part of movie magic, but at this point, and we're, you know, in the teens and, and 20s, that giant close-up is kind of, it's very disruptive to that illusion. If you think you're sort of watching theater, the, the giant head is weird, so... Well, yeah, and you're using that old, that's actually one thing that sort of fascinates me. The, the original, one of the earliest phrases for the close-up was the giant head. <laughs> it's actually, um, if I could correct this a little bit, I'd, I'd say that those kinds of close-ups start becoming more commonplace in, in movies of the 20s. And so this is one of the ways in which, you know, and it's, you, 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 can, never, you can never prove a one-to-one causality. There might have been a lot of reasons why this was the case, but there's no doubt as the, as the theaters got bigger that the camera got closer. So in other words, the, the heads got bigger as the theaters got bigger because of the important thing to keep in mind is the theaters might have, you know, they've got, they, they got up to the biggest theaters were five and 6,000 seats. And, you know, certainly most big cities had theaters that size. Smaller cities, cities might have them as large as 3,000, 3 to 4,000. The screens never grew commensurately, which is the screens from early on were about 12 feet. They got up to 20, 20 feet wide in, uh, in the silent period when all the big movie palaces were being built. And these were theaters that had proscenia that were, you know, could be 40, 50, 60 feet wide. Radio City Music Falls, the proscenium is 100 feet wide. And on that space, you've got a 20-foot wide screen. Radio City actually ended up eventually, it had one of the biggest ones before widescreen. It was 35 feet wide. But 35 feet wide on a proscenium that's 100 feet. So you know, the, the screen itself was relatively small compared to the architectural space. And one of the things that happens in the 20s is the camera starts getting closer. Uh, And that clearly has got to be, at least in part, a response to the change in architectural space. Now, the other thing I find kind of fascinating, and and I've argued this with a younger colleague of mine, is that I'm glad you brought it up, the big head. Um, I love this. And I actually once had, uh, this is quite a while ago. I'm old enough that I can say this. I actually had uh, a lunch with Raoul Walsh, thanks <laughs> to a colleague of mine, and uh, you know who began working with Griffith. He's John Wilkes Booth in Birth of a Nation, and you know made movies up to the early '60s. Um, and what fascinated me, because I think it's the first time I had ever heard this. I've come across it in, since then in reading old trade journals. Uh, he never said close-up. He just always referred to the big head. He said, and then, then, then we'd go in for a big head. And what intrigues me about that is 
do we really understand what people thought of close-ups in this period? Which is to say, you know, I think we say the most commonplace understanding of a close-up is it something that brings you emotionally closer to characters in some way? If you think of it in terms of space, um, that is an idea of being emotionally closer. But if you think about it in terms of size, it's something else. And you know, it could be a number of different things. It just could be a sense of imposingness, a sense of um, of being overwhelmed by something, whatever. But size is different from distance, and I think has different connotative values than distance. And uh, so, it you know, in that case, I think the term is significant. Is that you know, people in early filmmaking were not thinking about distance; they were thinking about size. So it's less that you're closer to your lover's face and more like you're looking at Mount Rushmore or something. Something like that, yeah. And you know, maybe that fits in with the, that old phrase of the idols of the of the you know the, of the of the silver screen, that uh, our tendency to idealize these people that they are truly larger than life in some way, especially when they're not speaking. You know, they are mm-hmm. at that sort of Olympian remove from everyday life. Yeah. But if, if you think about it in terms of distance, that you're just getting closer, you don't think of that. If you think in terms of size, then the idea of, of them being larger than life is, is, becomes a real issue. Well, and it's interesting, the close-up, I think, because, you know, they get, they get bigger and bigger um, as the TV era comes in, because they're going to end mm-hmm. up small on TV anyway. Uh, right. and there are certain movies, I mean, I always think of Camelot from the 60s, for example. I mean, it's hard to watch because it's so much close-ups. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And it's really claustrophobic in a weird way. And now I think as people's TVs have gotten bigger and bigger, we've gotten more to being able to go back to that remove. You know, you can you can make a movie like Dunkirk where it's a lot of times it's little people scurrying about. Uh well, I would I would say that with, with I, I would offer one qualification on this, and um, other people have written about this. As I think David Boardwell has extensively, the, the camera is getting a lot closer in the last thirty years of the century, and you know maybe it's an influence of TV. I don't know, but there's a real interesting distinction that happens in movies over the last twenty, thirty years. Is when you're in action scenes, it's a lot of long shots which is what you described in Dunkirk, a lot of people, a lot of small bodies scurrying around. But, you know, the minute you get into, uh, in contemporary films, the minute you get into a dialogue scene, it just all becomes cross-cut singles, cross-cut close-ups or medium shots. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You don't don't have two shots as much as we used to. (laughs) You don't have things where a dialogue would be shot in a single take the way it was certainly more common in the past. And you lose, this is a point that David Bordwell has made, is you, you lose a lot of body language. So one of the things that Bordwell has observed is that in contemporary movies, actors are constantly, actors love to use their hands when they're acting. And so they're constantly bringing their hands up to their face, up to their faces, because otherwise you wouldn't see their hands. Yeah. Interesting. So, well, yeah. let's let's go back to the twenties, uh, yeah. <laughs> where we were, um, and 
You talk a lot about uh, SL, I'm, I'm going to massacre his name probably, but SL Roxy Rothapfel. I don't know, was that how you said it? Yeah, Rothapfel, Ro- 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 I think. Rothapfel, Ro- okay. Rothapfel, yeah. Uh, Roxy. Roxy, as the, world, Roxy. Yeah. Yeah, as the world knows him. Uh, as, as a particularly influential figure in, in exhibition in terms of deciding how programs should be structured and that this was the kind of the artistic contribution of exhibitors back toward Hollywood was that their expectations set what kind of movies would be made. And uh, he was very much working in a kind of vaudeville mindset of what made a good evening's program. Mm-hmm. No, it's well, you know, his, his last theater was, was Radio City Music Hall. And Radio City Music Hall did not open as a movie theater. It opened as a attempt to bring vaudeville back in a, in a very elaborate way. And I think lasted for about three or four months, and they said, "This is not working. We're not getting enough audience." And they they added movies at that point. But one of the things that he he dictated really was that movies should be five reels, about five reels, because that made a good mm-hmm. second half of a program. Absolutely. Um, and before that was a variety of shorts. I don't know what all would have been in a typical program. Do you think? Well, the, this is, again, the, you know, the store theaters and the Nickelodeons, and that's where Roxy began. You know, he, he, uh, was a, he actually started getting some national attention, attention. He knew how to promote himself. But the trade press was writing articles about this great exhibitor in this little town in Pennsylvania who was doing remarkable things, and, and they were filling the theater every night, even though it was a tiny town and so on. Basically, it's, you know, this is what the Nickel Theater did, is it followed the principles of a vaudeville show. Uh, if you had, and usually would be maybe four different films, um, is that you program for variety. You know, and, and variety, of course, is the other name for vaudeville. So if you had a drama, then you'd follow it with a travelogue, then you'd follow it with uh, something else, and, and always end with a comedy. Um, so uh, he even liked instructional videos, educational video, uh, videos, uh, educational films, that kind of thing, and um, and you know, and so that each show was structured in the way that a vaudeville show was a constant need for change and variety. And in fact, some of the resistance in the U.S. to the feature film, and, and this is actually a debate they were having in the trade press was that uh, the feature film would not provide enough variety. Uh, and, uh, you know, people demanded that from, from a movie show. But if you just had one feature, that you know, it wouldn't work because you wouldn't give people that variety that they expected. So in a way, the growth of the, of the palaces really in some ways comes out of the vaudeville theater. And um, the... Uh, the you know the idea was that the live performance sections of it acted to enhance the feature, which could not attract enough of a crowd on its own. But if you gave them the variety of a live performance show, a series of acts like a like a vaudeville theater, uh, then that led up to the uh, to the feature. That would provide an evening's entertainment that would be more satisfying to uh, American audiences in any case. Now, there's that one really curious theater that you talk about at the beginning in Detroit mm-hmm. that was yeah. that was kind of the the most extreme example of that, which was literally 
it was a two-sided theater, I guess two auditoriums facing each other, basically. Yep. And then they're sort of projecting across each other through glass, because you had to keep the sound separated, onto Mm -hmm. the opposite screen. And one side would be the first half of the program, which was shorts and stuff like that. And the other side would be the second half of the program, which was the feature, continuously. So you could walk in, depending on which one you went into, you could start at any point in that evening's entertainment. Uh, yeah, and eventually because... it would cycle around. But it's so bizarre that they were they were like mirror images of each other, each projecting into the other room. It is, it is such a strange design. You, I'll just say, whether or not people buy the book, you should just take a look at the illustration. <laughs> because it's, it's really, it is hard to describe. It's, or, it's, or it's something, it's hard to believe the description, let's say. It really was a response to the beginnings of the feature film. And with the you know the short film uh, film showings that they had in nickel theaters, um, were just a series of shorts. So basically, you could pretty much walk in at any time and not really miss much, because if you even if you walked in the middle of a short, the shorts were not, yeah twelve to fifteen minutes long, and you'd be at the beginning of the next one. So the way this show worked was anybody who arrived at any time would get sent into the theater that was showing shorts. And the other theater had the feature where people were were seated by the beginning of the feature. My favorite part of it, you had to mention this, is that they had um, an orchestra pit. It shared only one orchestra because an orchestra would play for the feature while a organ or piano would play for the shorts. And so the orchestra would go underground <laughs> Trapes from one theater to the next to um, be in the pit in time for the feature film. And then when that was over, they would go to the other auditorium, into the pit in the other auditorium, in order to be there for the feature film. And this theater was really built. I mean, how long did it last? It was really built. Yeah, it was really built. It, it didn't last for that long. They expected it to be a template for other theaters, but then in a way it became unnecessary for a couple of reasons, because this is right right around the time The Strand opens, which is the, what most people take to be the first real movie palace and opens on Broadway. And that becomes the model that really works for the feature film, which is, you know, a series of live performances, a few shorts, and then the feature. There were plans to build, build them in a couple of other cities. But it never materialized because the uh, events overtook the design. Yeah, and the, you know the design had a purpose that lasted for about a year, <laughs> and then and then that purpose was was just basically you know that was that was finished. All right. So in the teens, we have this is basically the program. We have a, a movie that's kept to f- five reels, which is about an hour, I guess. Um, and a bit longer, maybe an hour. It could be as much as 72 minutes. Okay. And, uh, you know, and the live portion of it would be adjusted accordingly. Yeah. Um, and then, but at the same time, then the, the, the theaters are getting more spectacular. And so there arose a category of films called specials, which kind of broke with the rules of, that kind of thing. Uh, the big parade is an example you give. Sunrise later on, 
Um, these are bigger budgeted films. They're more spectacular. But you also say that it affected them aesthetically. More artistic things were done in the specials, almost as if they were kind of a, not quite a different species, but uh, but something different anyway. From the well, the to some degree they were, because they, they actually did call for different theaters. And so this is the thing, and I think you know, it's one thing that's been kind of lost in, in film history. Um, basically, we're always taught that movies premiered at the palaces, you know, played for a week or more if they were really successful, and then would move through second run, you know, palaces or first run and second run and third run and moving out to the neighborhoods. Uh, but in point of fact, that's not the way the system worked through a lot of the classical period, um, definitely not in the, in the teens and 20s. Uh, and to some degree, the feature film was responsible for this. So the earliest features, which are the ones that come from Italy and France, actually play in legitimate theaters. And those are all theaters that are you know, anywhere from maybe 12 to 1500 seats. And they show them twice a day, reserve seats, some cases with prices approaching prices for live theater. Um, and those, have, you know, so those will eventually become, will be called specials. Uh, the theaters that, that premiere in the palaces are called programmers because they fit the program. You know, there's this program of live performance, short films, and the feature. So those are programmers. But the specials always played in what were called extended run theaters. And extended run theaters were not like the palaces. You know, we tend to think of old movie exhibition as the palaces, but that's not all it was. Uh, there were these theaters that were closer to legitimate theaters and, in, in fact, were often legitimate theaters. In some cases, the Schubert uh, Theatrical Syndicate would book films across the country if they were specials. So, you know, they, they were very much allied with theaters. And then the specials were, in fact, um, movies that sought to have some of the, the, the patent of artistic uh, quality that you, people would associate with live theater. And, you know, that, that the movies were challenging live theater in this way. Um, and, you know, as you know from reading the book is that uh, for example, again, you know, movies that played at the palace would play for a week. If they were really successful, they might be held over for two or three weeks. Four weeks would be an incredibly long run at the palace. Whereas in what was, were called the extended run theaters, which is where the specials played, four weeks was like the minimum that they would expect. The big parade played in New York City at one theater for nearly two years, just I think about a month short of two years. Um, and that was a different form of exhibition that demanded a different kind of movie. And it seems like they're, they're the ones that are more artistically ambitious. Um, certainly in the case of Sunrise, I mean, it's a, basically an American version of a German art film. Big Parade mm -hmm. has themes of great social importance. Uh, yeah. Sometimes it was, it was spectacle, like uh, you have an ad for Lubitsch's The Patriot in the book. Um, mm -hmm. A very nice looking ad that look has a very theatrical, you know, theater program look to it. Yeah, my favorite thing in that ad is if you notice at the bottom it says not not available for movie theaters at this time. So that was one of the things that intrigued me when I first came across that. It, well, you know, if it's a movie, it's not playing in a movie theater. Where is it playing? And that's really the way they thought of these films. That these films were somehow distinct 
from the average run of movies, and so they did, they actually had to have a different architectural environment. And yeah, and they were often they were often artistically more ambitious. Well, that really lasted into the into the early sound era, but then with the depression, um, we get something that's kind of a return to the day of the programmer, which is we start getting double bills. Um, which mm-hmm. could, which could either be basically two programmers because they weren't really that long, you know. So many of those movies at the time are only seventy minutes still, or it could yeah, be yep. an, an A picture and a B picture. Um, and mm-hmm. I, there was a funny thing, and I, I I don't know why this was, but you said Illinois tried to outlaw double bills, which is sort of typical for Illinois government to go meddling <laughs> meddling in things like that, but. Uh, what uh, what was the reasoning for why the double bill was a menace to society? <laughs> well, you know, it had people just sitting in theaters for hours and hours and hours. I guess um, that was was one thing. There, you know, there were concerns about the quality of the films. Um, it's it's really funny. People constantly complained about double bills because the second movie was often kind of bad, um, and yet theaters that showed them always did better business. So it was basically kind of an attempt. I think the the thing in Illinois was an attempt to help protect the theaters that didn't want to do that. Yeah. Um, so that's 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 part of it. Uh, but you know the the extended run thing does continue into the fifties. It just it becomes less uh, because of the depression. It is not as articulated as it was in the twenties. But you know, for example, and I would just do I, I did a kind of random checking of this um one thing i did do is i just looked at everything that opened in new york over a 30-year period so i could kind of track this uh but basically you know the movies that we tend to watch nowadays that we continue to watch from the classical period most of them were were movies that ended up in extended run situations so you know that uh, citizen kane was supposed to be a flop but it ran for for months when it opened on broadway Reserve seats and uh, and with near theatrical prices, so Citizen Kane did. Um, if they weren't necessarily reserved seats, it was if it was considered a quality movie like The Have and Have Not, that ran at a single smaller than a palace at a single theater in New York for four months before it started playing anywhere else. So you know the system continues uh, into the 50s, and it's just not as um, Let's say it's it's a bit less so than it was in the 20s. That's all. But you, you, you're right. Is the uh, in a way the, the other thing? Um, I think the important thing to keep in mind with the double bill because they, they had been around for a while. But what really pushes towards the double bill was the uh, disappearance of the stage show, because the stage show began to seem less and less necessary with sound film. Okay. You know, partly it was partly that, and it was also then the economics of the depression. It was pretty expensive to put on a you know basically a vaudeville show in addition to the feature film. But still, it goes back to that old thing of the roots of movies and vaudeville. There was a concern that audiences would not think they were getting sufficient variety with just a single feature. Well, and then you get, you know, those movies that are advertised as something for everyone. There's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's going to be some musical numbers and there, you know, and Johnny will go off to war and there'll be a romance and there'll be a gangster, mm-hmm. you know, everything, everything thrown at the plot. Um, another big thing that, uh, 
that comes along at this time is this the screen finally moves down from back of the stage up to mm-hmm. the front and that's because right. sound comes in and you got to put the sound equipment somewhere and you got to put a bunch of holes in the screen so you can hear it through that um was the was the idea that you know we were simulating theater finally dead by that point? I I don't think I don't. It's really not until the sixties that the connection to live theater starts to become attenuated. Um, I think they still see it uh, in those terms, but you're right that there's a uh, a difference because uh, moving the screen downstage did a number of things, but one of the things was it got rid of the stage settings. So at this point, the screen is no longer in, you know, ensconced within the stage set. Now it's, this is where black masking comes into its own. So the screen just is placed in this sea of black masking. And that had to do with acoustics, because you didn't want the screen to be surrounded by uh, surfaces that the sound would bounce against and start you know, creating really major acoustical problems. So you got it downstage, uh, the speakers were put behind the screens unnecessarily because our sense of hearing is actually not as directional as people seem to think. Um, but, you know, they thought it had to be behind the screen. And you're right, the screen was shot full of holes, um, which actually decreased the illumination of the screen. So bringing it a little further forward helps, helps a bit with that. The, uh, you know, that's also the period of really soft focus, because I think one of the other things that happens is the moving the screen down to the curtain line increased the numbers of seats that are are at extreme angles to the image on the uh, in these wide auditoria, which was not the case when it was further upstage. Um, Even so, though, the advent of sound, if anything, um, makes the, you know, the filmmakers, film professionals uh, feel even more strongly that what they're doing is connected to theater. And um, you do have a lot of people from, you know, a lot of writers who worked on Broadway move west to work at least part-time in Hollywood, make make some good Hollywood money, and then move back east. Um, you have stars from Broadway becoming more commonly used in movies because they know how to read lines, and that's an, an important issue. So, um, and you have a lot of, you know, it's a period, um, I think, you know, there's a chart towards the end of the book about uh, adaptations, how, how adaptations were, uh, stage plays were one of the most common sources for films in, this, in the period. And there's actually a bump up around this period in the number of stage plays that are being uh, made into movies. So I think there's still a tendency to think, you know, well, what we're doing is theater. It's allied with theater. Um, I think it really is only in the uh, under the influence of the rise of international arts in them after World War II uh, in the 60s that you start to really loosen the tide to, to this seemingly existential tide of theater. Well, you also get around that same time, you get widescreen, which... Mm-hmm changes the shapes of theaters in general um some of those older theaters can't handle it or they have to build the screen out in front of the old proscenium arch and it's just sort of a relic behind it um 
actually the music box near me when they do 70 millimeter that's actually on a screen that's kind of set out front so uh, you know almost looking like a drive-in theater <laughs> screen uh-huh. stand, okay. standing in front of the stage um, mm-hmm. And there's a there's a figure that you talk about. And this is someone I never knew about, and but he seems to have been a pretty influential figure on theater design, which in turn affects everything else. And that's Ben Schlanger. Who was Ben Schlanger? Mm-hmm. He was a uh, an architect who began uh, working in uh, late twenties, early thirties. Um, he had some radical redesigns for theaters. He was the only architect whose primary concern was how the image appeared in architectural space. And he became very influential because he also wrote prolifically. Uh, He wrote for architecture journals. He wrote for the Journal of the Society of Motion Picture Engineers, which later became Motion Picture and Television Engineers, one of the crucial, the crucial uh, uh, body for studying technology standards in movies and television. And he wrote a lot of articles for them and actually uh, established committees at the society that dealt with theater architecture. And, um, and then he was a regular columnist for Motion Picture Herald, which was the primary journal for film exhibition. Uh, so he was, and people listened to him. You know, he was an important voice, uh, both in terms of the designs that he offered and then in terms of the articles that he wrote. And his primary concern was the idea that the image should not be into an architectural space, which is basically the way, you know, people would design a theater and, okay, we'll put the screen up here, but that the screen itself should dictate what the architectural space was. Um, and unfortunately, he did not design the kinds of theaters that would get historic designation they should have. So there's not, I think there's virtually no theaters that have his original design left in the country. But um, I have been in a lot of them, and they were great places to see movies. The idea, the idea he always had was that the image should take over your field of vision. Um, so for that reason, uh, he designed a, he was against black masking because he pointed out that black masking created problems uh, in the way that you saw because you were looking at both a dead black space as well as a as reflected light. And he said your eye could would have trouble resolving the distinction between the two. And it was better to create a sense of, of the screen kind of suspended in, a, in an aura of light um, so it seemed to take over your whole field of vision. And um, he's, he was pretty great. He did some really wonderful designs. And uh, I grew up in a little town in Connecticut, New Haven, that actually had uh, was it three theaters that were designed by him. And then there were a lot in New York, and I lived in New York for a long time. So I, I had a kind of personal experience. I, I had no idea, you know, until I started doing the research for this book and discovered uh, that this is the guy who made these designed these movie theaters I went to as a kid, um, and also in New York. But that how important he was, and why? Yeah, I thought these movies looked better. There was a neighborhood theater in, in New Haven that I, even as a kid, I preferred going to to the downtown palaces because I thought the movies looked better. And uh, you know, then as an adult, I discovered there was a reason for that. 
Yeah. Well, and it seems like I mean, just judging by the pictures you show, uh, what is it, Cinema One and Cinema Two in in New York? Yep. Um, yeah. That, I mean, essentially they, you know, the the vulgarization of his design is the the multiplexes of today. Mm-hmm. Pretty yeah. min, pretty minimalist, dominated by the big screen at one end. Um, what were so what were really his principles uh, in action if that was done ideally? Well, he wanted this, um, and this sounds stranger than it is. Most people don't even notice when you do it. Uh, he had this um, way of situating the screen in a uh, the surrounding panels that angled out from the screen towards the side walls. And the way it would work is it would create a kind of light surround for the image uh, that reflected whatever was in the image in a, you know, in a very diffuse fashion. And um, it, it's very odd. You don't really notice it, but it makes it seem as if the image is just kind of suspended in space in front of you. And you really lose a sense of the, uh, of the surrounding theater, of the surrounding architecture, in a way that you never do in proscenium theaters. Um, so one of the things, you know, again, this, this sounds, uh, does not sound radical to us anymore, but one of the things that was radical about a couple of theaters that he did in the, in the fifties and, you know, immediately called attention to it was he got rid of curtains. So he did not put curtains in front of the screen. And, um, you know, the curtains were there as a sign of, of theatricality. People would argue that they offered some protection on uh, some cover for the, for the screen and uh, you know maybe in theaters that a lot of smoke that has something to do with it, but not much. Yeah. Um, that they were you know as we now know that the curtain curtaining the screen was not necessary, but it was seen as necessary going up through the fifties. So Schlanger said, no, it's you know you want the audience to come in and see the screen. That's what they're going to be looking at, and that's going to define the space. And then the rest of the auditorium would be pretty neutral. Uh, he would sort of grays and, and and browns. My favorite one in New Haven was a, um, a, you know, and these could be very elegant theaters, although very, very simple. It's a theater that had these sort of undulating walls that were a kind of bronzed brown color and quite handsome, but you lose all sense of that when the movie started. And that's what, that's what he wanted you to do is you just, it was you and the image. And, uh, Everything else would sort of fade away. Thanks to my guests, Denise Morrison and William Paul, and to Bruce Calvert. Music is by Kevin McLeod. There will be links to what we talked about in the show post at nitrateville.com, so check it out. And hey, why not stick around and talk vintage movies with us, too? At the very least, subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Thanks. Thanks.